that divides us according to our race and prevents us from complete unity within your body. God, we confess that we often turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to systems that use power to oppress ethnic minorities, and we also turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to the ways that we um, are complicit to these systems and oppress our brothers and sisters. We confess the ways that we intentionally oppress ethnic minorities, whether by word or deed, and we also confess our unintentional blindness to these biases and these behaviors. We ask that you open our eyes to these truths. Lord, we need you to help us see that this is truly an issue that many of our brothers and sisters are hurting <coughs> and face daily oppression based on their skin color or ethnicity. And God, we ask you to show us ways that we can use our power to instead seek justice for people of every ethnic background and to show us ways that we can be ministers of reconciliation in our city. Father, we ask you to make Soma Church a picture of reconciliation. We pray this according to your will. We know that you've said in your word that you desire unity in the church. And we pray that you would give us the kind of unity that you ask for in John chapter 17. That the church body would have the unity that you have, Father, with your son, Jesus. And we also pray for James and Allison Piscasio, our deacons of racial reconciliation. That you would give them wisdom and endurance as they lead us to become a church that reflects your heart for reconciliation. In Jesus' name, amen. The scripture today is John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. All right. Thank you guys for your prayers and for your reading. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at SOMA. Glad to have you uh, with us this morning. If you're new, which... I want to give a shout out if you're a Butler student. I know we're starting back class this week. College is back in. Yep, where are we at? Butler students in the house. Glad to have you guys. Welcome from all over the country. I think the majority of you tend to cluster from places like Illinois and Iowa. Uh, for, I don't know why that is, but we're glad that you're here. Wherever you come from, uh, we're glad that you're here. I don't know. Some of you uh, may be here against your will. Your mother's in town, and so you're just doing the church thing out of obligation. Some of you thought you were going to brunch, and they brought you into this building that you thought was a restaurant, and it's actually a church. Um, and some of you actually want to be here. So we're glad for all of you, whether you're here and you're a follower of Jesus or you're here, uh, and maybe you're a skeptic or maybe you're seeking uh, something spiritually, we're glad that you're here. And um, we are in the middle, so we're, you're kind of uh, jumping into the middle of the movie, so to speak. 
Uh, we've been doing a series on power the last couple of weeks and asking the question, what would it look like for us as a community in a world that's kind of immersed and saturated in conversations about power and is everywhere? What would it look like for us to recapture the idea of the church as a creative minority, um, seeking to use the power that God's given us to bring about flourishing in the world rather than um, injustice and oppression? And uh, so the first week we uh, started out by looking back at the origins of power in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we call that creative power, the, God, the power that God himself, the all-powerful, almighty one, used to, to breathe the universe into existence and then us being created in his image as powerful beings with the potential possibilities of using that same creative power to bring about wholeness and healing in the world. Last week we looked at, uh, Pastor Josh led us through Genesis chapter 3, and we looked at the distortion of power and how creative power can quickly, in the hands of fallen human beings, turn into uh, destructive power. And this week we're going to be talking about leadership and power, next week institutions and power from the book of Daniel, and then the last week we're going to look in Jeremiah at uh, what it looks like to actually live out the rhythms of a creative minority uh, seeking to live uh, in the city, for the city, um, using the power that God's given us for the flourishing of our city. So today we're talking about leadership and power, and I think there's um, no way you can talk about leadership and power without addressing the issue of privilege. Um, so I know that that immediately is going to, everybody's head snaps too, and, um, and I know that none of you want to be me right now, because we're going to talk about privilege for a little bit here. Um, but, but that's what the church is for, right? We're, we're, we're a place where we should be able to talk. If we can't talk about these issues in the church, um, what are we doing, right? So, like, we're not afraid of controversy, uh, assuming that we're not just trying to be provocative, but we're trying to understand what the Scripture teaches on these issues. And the Bible has a lot to say, actually, about privilege. So let me ask you a question. When you hear that word, it was mentioned in the prayer, uh, it was at least insinuated in the prayer, um, when we talk about things like oppression and majority culture, minority culture, um, we talk about gender issues, we talk about class issues, we talk about privilege. What is stirred up in your heart when you hear the word privilege? There's all kinds of talk of privilege, checking your privilege, thinking about your privilege, using your privilege, disavowing your privilege. What stirs up in you when you hear the word privilege? For some of us, maybe we get defensive. We want to argue. For others of us, it maybe stirs up rage, and we think about uh, the abuse that we've suffered at the hands of powerful people, powerful systems, powerful structures. Andy Crouch, in his great book, which we've recommended throughout this series, but I want to just kind of bring it to your attention again. It's called Playing God. Um, Andy's an author, and I think probably one of the best writers on privilege and power uh, that I know of from a kind of a biblical standpoint. He opens his book talking about... Um, privilege and power, and he talks about privilege um, by using some different analogies in the ways we typically think about, uh, like salary. So he uses the example of wage. When you earn a wage, you do a job, and you put some creative power into something, and then you earn a wage that's commensurate, right? There's a one-to-one kind of zero-sum benefit transaction when it comes to a wage, and we're all familiar with the concept of a wage. You work, and you earn a salary that's commensurate with that wage. Um, a step up from wage, maybe better than wage, uh, maybe some of you that are in the more creative fields, if you're a professional athlete, uh, which I don't think any of us in this room are, but if you are, um, there's the idea of rent, and not like the rent that you pay your landlord, but the idea of rent is um, kind of dealing with market power. So you do a job, maybe the job is actually worth, or maybe the, the job you could do for 10 bucks an hour, $15 an hour, or $20 an hour, but the market commands a salary or a wage that is much higher than that, and so you maybe earn $50 for something that cost you $10 of energy and creative power, that yield in between the $10 and the $50 is what we call economic rent, right? That's a good situation, right? You work at something that should maybe earn you $10, maybe historically would have earned you $10, you earn $50, $40, we're in pretty good shape, right? So above rent, the only thing maybe better than rent, and, and if you're a writer, maybe you understand this, a publisher, is the idea of royalties. Royalties as you do something one time, and then the checks just start flowing in for the rest of your life. You write a book, it becomes successful, you get royalties. Anytime somebody sings your song or quotes your book or whatever, 
you get royalties. So you do something one time, and then <clears throat> you accrue the benefits of that for a lifetime. Crouch makes the point in his book that the only thing better than royalties, if there is, I mean, I think this is like the vision that most of us have for our life. Wouldn't a royalties kind of lifestyle be nice? Like you do something once and you just make money for the rest of your life while you're, you know, binging on Netflix, right? Like this is a lifestyle that a lot of us would like to live into. The only thing he says better than royalties is privilege. Privilege is you do nothing and you get something. His definition of privilege is one of the more helpful ones to me. Um, He defines it as the ongoing benefits of past successful exercises of power. The ongoing benefits of of past successful exercises of power. He says privilege is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a dangerous thing, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. Something that most of us don't have any control over. It's kind of like winning the lottery of birth, as some have said. Now, um, I want to explain, the the first time I became aware of privilege, uh, I'm a kid that grew up in a working class neighborhood in the South, from Louisville, Kentucky, which is southern for y'all up here, Um, and I grew up in a working class kind of uh, suburban area on the south side of Louisville, what we call the dirty south where I'm from. And, um, and so I was very unaware, I went to private school growing up, and then I went to public school and back to private school but I was blissfully unaware of, of any kind of concept of, of privilege and very underexposed to the larger world. I remember the first time it really, uh, there was kind of a reckoning for me of uh, the way that I grew up. Uh, I was on a mission trip to the Philippines, and uh, I was on a church trip. And I was with uh, a team of missionaries led by uh, Tim Tebow's dad. So some of you guys know Tim Tebow. His father's a missionary. And, um, and so I was on a mission trip with them. And we were going around to schools preaching Jesus, um, and it was really interesting. So we show up at these schools. I'm 18 years old, and um, crowds of people would flock around us. We'd go to a school, and it was like we were celebrities. I mean, we'd walk out. Now, I love the Philippines because I'm five foot ten, and I am a giant in the Philippines. I'm taller than everybody. I can actually see over the crowd when I'm in a crowd. It's amazing. But just by virtue of my skin color and by virtue of some cultural, social power that I have as an American, we would go to towns where they had literally never seen white people, and it was as if I was Mick Jaggers putting on a performance or Bruce Springsteen or name your celebrity Justin Bieber, Timberlake. I mean, we're out there, and people are thronging around us. They want to speak English to us. They're there because we have a certain kind of power, and it gave us access to certain benefits that we did nothing to earn. I mean, I'm an 18-year-old moron. Nobody should be rallying around me for anything. That was the first time that it struck me, wow, I have privilege that I didn't do anything to earn just by virtue of my genetics and the time I was born in history. I have a power to elicit a crowd of people. Now, when we use this word privilege, um, I want to just take a few minutes to define what people mean when they talk about privilege culturally. Because again, there's somewhat of a generation gap. And if you're maybe, say, over the age of 50, when you think of privilege, you're going to think of a certain kind of thing. Uh, If you're under the age of 40, you're going to think of a certain kind of thing. So I want to just distill what is very complex Um, down into just a few minutes. I want to do like maybe 10 minutes of explaining what people mean when they use the word privilege in our culture. And then I want to talk about uh, what Jesus would call us to do when when we think about privilege, how Jesus um, thought about his privilege and his power and how that could be a model for us. So the the, the idea of privilege basically breaks down into, it's, it's a polarity, right? And there's two kind of camps And again, it's a spectrum, it's a continuum, and people will identify themselves along this continuum. But there's two basic ideas or concepts when it comes to privilege that people talk about. One, on one end of the spectrum, uh, is what we call uh, rights, right? So for some people, the idea of privilege is all about rights, it's about justice. And, And people are saying that we should be acknowledging that people's human rights are being trampled, that there are systems... Uh, that are set up and that people are being oppressed, that 
that privilege is something that should be torn down, deconstructed, done away with, because it is keeping certain groups of people down. It's very much tied to justice. Now, privilege has been talked about for a long time, right? It was talked about in civil rights. It was talked about all the way back to the time of uh, W.B. Du Bois. I mean, there are lots of people that have talked about privilege, but it came into popular usage in the way that it's used now in academia and on college campuses and universities into more popular usage uh, through the writings of a lady named Peggy McIntosh. Peggy McIntosh was a women's studies scholar at Wellesley. Uh, she wrote a paper in 1988. It's very complex. If you take gender studies classes, you know uh, this paper. It was very influential. Um, and she wrote this paper, and she identified 46 examples of what she called white and male privilege. Okay, and that became uh, a very much a theme of her writing and her work with the Seed Project. And, and so as people have, have kind of built on her work, there's different types of pr- privilege from this framework that have been identified. Racial privilege, uh, religious privilege, class or socioeconomic privilege, gender privilege, citizenship privilege, orientation privilege. These are all different kinds of example, but the basic idea uh, is that the game of life, so to speak, has been rigged for certain groups of people. And in this idea, in this framework, Um, this explains so much of why people who are maybe on the the dark side or the underside of that equation feel so blocked, feel like they can't make progress in the world. Paul Piff, who's a social psychologist, gave a talk uh, a couple of years ago at TEDx that went viral, and he compared it to a game of Monopoly. And he said, imagine that, and others have said this, imagine uh, a game of Monopoly, right, growing up as a kid, and imagine that um, a game of Monopoly had started and been played for several hours, and the board had been filled, and all the properties had been bought up, and there had been hotels and stuff loaded onto the big properties, and imagine that you were invited into the game halfway through, and you're excited about playing Monopoly, and you get into the game, and you begin to move your piece around the board, and you realize uh, everything you land on has been loaded, and you owe all kinds of taxes, and you can't seem to get access to the power of the game of Monopoly. And at some point, um, he says, you reach a place where it's better off to be in jail than to move around the board and play the game. It's safer. It's easier. That's what he says it feels like to be on the downside of privilege, to be on the underside of privilege. This has been expressed most popularly probably with the idea of intersectionality, right? Intersectionality is a concept developed by, uh, kind of coined a phrase, a concept coined by an African-American legal scholar named Kimberly Crenshaw. Kimberly Crenshaw again wrote a paper in the late 80s, 1989, and she compared uh, this idea of um, rights being oppressed to kind of an intersection, right? And you think about an intersection and an accident in an intersection, There's all kinds of forces that are coming together, and it's hard to reconstruct in an accident the cause oftentimes in a busy intersection. You see skid marks, and you see all kinds of things, but it's often hard to figure out um, where the oppression is coming from. Is it related to race? Is it related to class? Is it related to gender? She said that's what it feels like. It's this idea that there are interlocking, interweaving forces that are conspiring together in the world spiritual, uh, social, psychological, uh, physical, all of these interlocking structures act as kind of a ceiling to block certain groups of people from prospering. Often it's unintentional, it's unconscious, it's embedded in the way that we live. People who think about privilege through a rights framework often are very exquisitely attuned to the systemic, to the structural realities of our world, and to the communal factors. There's a sense of communal identity here that's lost on many of us in the West. The results of this kind of justice approach to this rights approach to privilege, what it leads to for people who this kind of explains the way that they live their life. Two things, alienation and frustration and bitterness and rage. Rage, and oftentimes rightfully so. James Baldwin, who was writing during, who was a civil rights activist writing during the civil rights movement, said this To be a black man in this country 
And to be relatively conscious is to be in rage almost all the time. That's one half of the privileged conversation. The other side of it is responsibility. Responsibility. So on the other end of the continuum, these are people that say, privilege is a myth, right? It's a construct. All about identity politics. It doesn't exist. It's not a real thing. What we need to do is take personal responsibility for ourselves. Take personal responsibility for our futures, right? Work hard. Graduate from high school. Quit complaining. Be grateful. Like, right? And some people who even grew up in poverty and who have kind of a rags-to-riches story, this is kind of their mindset. I've done it. You should too. Anyone who wants to, as long as you graduate high school, right, and, and you're a reasonably moral person, can gain access to the privileges and the benefits of American society. There's a big emphasis here in this, uh, on this side on, um, on kind of naming what people would call a, a culture of victimology. This, this idea of victimology, I think, was coined by a guy named Thomas Sowell, an African-American economist. He's written on this at... Uh, at large. Uh, there was another recent book uh, by a lady named Phoebe Maltz called The Perils of Privilege. She kind of talked about this. She called it the fetishization of powerlessness, that we live in a climate of competitive victimhood where one's, one's group's grievance has no clout as long as some other group has it worse. The results of this responsibility side of the continuum among other things, are defensiveness, right? Like any time that concept of privilege comes up in a conversation, it's just, ugh, there's an agenda. And we get angry and we rage at the idea that some people don't have access to power. You could see this in, a, in an article by a guy named Tal Fort, Fortgang. It went viral a few years ago. Uh, it was called, he's a Princeton student writing about this, a white Princeton student, and he wrote an article called Check My Privilege. And if you want a searing defense of this side of the continuum, read it. I mean, it is acidic in his critique of this idea of obsessing over privilege. So for some of us, we get defensive. For others of us, we just feel a sense of immobilizing guilt. I'm white. I have money. I'm middle class. I'm educated. What do I do? I don't know. Am I supposed to walk around apologizing all the time, right? Like, I feel like I've worked hard, right? Maybe I come from a family of immigrants, which most of us do, right? All of us ultimately do here in America, but many of us are first or second or third generation. I lived in South Florida. This conversation really came to the fore for me living in South Florida. I lived just an hour north of Miami for a couple years, and at one of our staff retreats, um, we had on our staff a Cuban pastor and we had an African-American pastor. And uh, we were talking about, somehow it came up, we were talking about, uh, in, in, in traditional churches in the South, this kind of a thing, if you didn't grow up in this kind of environment, uh, good for you. But they have, uh, July 4th, they have these Sundays where it's God and country, right? And they sing like Lee Green songs, uh, Greenwood songs, if you're familiar with that. If that means nothing to you, then again, God bless you. Uh, they sing the national anthem, there's pledges of allegiance, and we got into this conversation because our church had a history, a very racialized history, but we had a history of these God and country uh, Sundays. And so we were talking about just the, the Pledge of Allegiance and the flag and, and all this stuff. And literally, these two staff members almost got into a fistfight on the retreat. Men of God, very studied, very godly men. On the one hand, you had an African-American saying, I don't say the Pledge of Allegiance. My grandmother was a slave. And to me, all I see when I see that flag is oppression. I don't say the Pledge of Allegiance. On the other hand, you had a Cuban guy whose father fled Castro, came across and touched land and got amnesty, worked their way up from poverty into the middle class in South Florida as a Cuban, now as a second-generation Cuban, saying, I love America. This country is great. You better say the Pledge of Allegiance. And it just was interesting to me, so I'm sitting here going, I've never had to think about this in my life. Never had to think about it. I grew up in a Christian private school with a bunch of white people 
mostly in the middle to upper middle class domain of society. You just never had to think about it. Rights, responsibility. What do we do with that? Where do we find ourselves? Which of those do you identify with the most? What's stirred up in you when you hear that word privilege? And what does Jesus think about all of this? It's complex. It's relational. It is structural. It is emotional, right? It is very, very important. And I believe that this issue of how we talk about and think about privilege is one of the great opportunities for building plausibility structures for the Christian faith and for Christian leadership in the world right now in this moment. So what does Jesus have to say about power and privilege? He shows us the way forward in John chapter 13. I mean, I could go anywhere in the New Testament. Um, You could go anywhere in the life of Jesus because this is who he was. But I want us to see some things Um, because I think Jesus transcends both of these. I think he actually deconstructs both of these. Both of these frameworks of a merely rights-based framework or a merely uh, responsibility framework, I think Jesus is calling us to transcend these polarities, this, this fragmentation that we find ourselves in, and to reclaim some different categories. And the word that I want to use um, for our time together here, what I think Jesus does with power and what I think we should be thinking about in terms of power is not merely this rights framework over here, not merely this responsibilities framework over here. I think what Jesus calls us to do is this idea of redirection. Redirecting our power, redirecting our privilege, holding our power and privilege to come under in service of others. Right? Redirecting our power and privilege in the service of other people. Now, let me unpack that from John 13. There's two basic things here that I want you to see that Jesus does when it comes to power, when it comes to privilege, right? The most powerful human being who's ever lived. You could argue the most privileged human being by virtue of being God in the flesh that's ever lived. How does he show us how to handle power in our leadership in a way that leads to the flourishing of others? The first thing that we see that Jesus does is he recognizes and kind of owns his privilege. There's a recognition of who he is. Look at verses 1 through 3. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse 3. Jesus And here's the key phrase, underline this, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And look down at verse 13, verse 12. Do you understand what I've done for you? Do you call me teacher and Lord? And you are right, for so I am. Am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now notice the first thing we see here is recognition. Jesus is fully conscious of his authority and his power. What people often say about Jesus, and it is wrong, is that he gave up his power when he became a human being. He absolutely never ever in the Gospels gives up his power. He is fully aware throughout the Gospels of the power and authority. Notice, he knew where he came from. He knew that he was God. He knew that he was the eternal God, that he was going back to God. He was completely comfortable and at home with his power and privilege. Never apologizes for it. He says, you call me teacher and Lord. The two highest titles in the Jewish pecking order in terms of the religious architecture of the day. You call me rabbi and you call me kyrios. And you're right. I am. I have that kind of authority. He never gives up his authority. He is always at home with his authority and his power, his privilege. Do we have that kind of freedom? Do you recognize the power that you have? This kind of takes us back to week one. But do you recognize, can you own the privileges that are yours 
the accumulation of past exercises of power that you did nothing to achieve? Acts 17, verse 26, the Apostle Paul says this about power. Do we have that verse? Sorry. Rob? Uh, yeah, we'll get to it. Maybe. Can we flip this next slide? Oh, sorry. My bad. Acts 17, 26. I'll summarize it. In case, there we go. And he made, this God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, assigned, ordained periods or epics, or this word here is, is, the, is kairos, the, the seasons in which we should live, and the boundaries of our dwelling place. God assigned the time in which you live. He assigned the skin color that you would inhabit, the ethnicity that you would grow up in. God determines those things according to his providential purposes. We don't have to apologize for those. We don't have to try to undo those. They are ours by virtue of God's sovereignty. 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul goes on and says, all things are yours, right? All things are yours. What do you have that you did not receive? Everything we have, he says, is a gift from God. Your intellect, right? If you're educated, who gave you those intellectual abilities to be able to do that? You hold no responsibility for that, right? Like, who gave you all things? He says, all capacity, all ability comes from God. So let's just own that, right? Like, let's just list those. Maybe this week it'd be helpful for you just to sit down and do an inventory to audit your privilege and your power. Like, I'll just do this for me. I'm a Christian. That is the most unbelievable privilege on the planet. I did nothing to earn it. If I understand grace, it's not because I was smarter. It's not because I was more humble. It's not because of anything that I did. God reached down into my life, transformed my heart supernaturally, imparted the divine resurrection power of Jesus into me, and has made me a new person. I have access to all the benefits of eternal life. Like, you can't ultimately harm me because no matter what you do to me, I'm going to live for, I have the power of indestructible life flowing in me. That is an amazing privilege, right? Are we awake? That is an amazing privilege. I am a U.S. citizen. That is an amazing privilege and responsibility. There are benefits that come with that that I did nothing to earn. I was simply born into a family that had citizenship. I am, I speak English, an amazing privilege and benefit in the world in which we live. I am a white male. Benefit and liability. But it is a benefit, it is a privilege of which I did nothing to earn. I have a PhD, I'm educated. An amazing privilege that came to me by virtue of circumstances that I had very little to do with. I am a homeowner. I drive a car. I mean, think about all of these benefits that we have. So the question is not, you know, how do I try to, like, live with this sense of, like, false guilt about these things? But rather, how do I steward these realities towards the kingdom of God, towards the flourishing of those around me? How, am I as comfortable and, and at home with these things, not as some kind of right, but as a, as a privilege, as something that God has gifted to me to be used for his glory and for the good of others? Second thing we see Jesus doing is renunciation. He recognizes the privilege that he has, but he also renounces renounces the common and human temptation to use that power and privilege for self-interest, for status, and for success. That is what Jesus was giving up in becoming a human being. Not his power. He was giving up self-interested privilege and power. And there's all the difference in the world between those two things. He was giving up the right to use that power, which was his by virtue of being God in the flesh, he renounces his right to use those for self-interest, for status, and for success. And that's why he's always talking about his mission, right? John 13, he talks about this hour that's coming. This word hour is a word for uh, his death and resurrection. In the book of John, it's mentioned at least five times. 
It is a euphemism. It's a, it's a, it's a shorthand for his mission of coming to die in our place for our sins, to renew the world. John 12, the chapter before, verses 23 through 24. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. When we think of glorified, we think of like leveraging you know, glory for a platform. And what does glorification mean to Jesus? What is this hour that's coming? Is this when he's going to like IPO and get, you know, get a jet and like take his ministry global, you know? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The kind of glory that Jesus is talking about is the glory of a cross. It's the glory of thorns. It's the glory of death that leads to life for others. And that's what shocked Peter. The subversiveness of what Jesus is doing here, going low, bringing his power underneath his disciples was historically and culturally unprecedented in the Greco-Roman world. No teacher got down on their knees with a towel around their waist to serve their disciples. It was the job of the disciples to serve their rabbis, to serve the more powerful in the room. There was a pecking order on how that was supposed to happen with all kinds of unspoken social norms. When a powerful person entered the room, the least powerful person knew it was their job to serve the more powerful. And Jesus says, I, with all of my power, renounce my right to use this for self-interest, and I'm going to come under you and serve you. And Peter said, no way. And Jesus says, well, if you don't allow me to serve you, you will have no inheritance in my kingdom, because this is the essence of what it means to live in the kingdom. Philippians 2. We talked about this earlier in the summer. Verses 6 six through 7. Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clutched, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He didn't clutch on to his status as the Son of God at the expense of his mission to come and serve and save and sacrifice himself. This, I would argue, is the essence of redirection. The essence of redirection is redirecting our power in the service of others, fully conscious of the power that we have, but also renouncing, using that power in self-interested ways, rather saying everything that I've been given in terms of power and privilege is to be used for the benefit of those around me, is to be shared, is to be multiplied for those who are vulnerable, for those who are suffering, for those who need redemption. That's why he came to wash their feet. Notice the rest of this passage. He poured water into a basin and began to wash their feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he had washed their feet and he put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. See, washing their feet wasn't, it wasn't just about washing their feet. This is a sign. In the book of John, these signs point to greater realities. The sign that Jesus is pointing towards here by doing the scandalous work of a household servant, stripping himself down to the attire of a household servant. Right? Like the lowliest, I mean, think about it. Everybody walked. You know what I'm saying? Like, think about the state fair. Okay, when you're walking around the horse stables, you know the difference between like country folk and city folk is the ones who are looking down. When they're walking around, city folk are just squish, squish, squish. I mean, or, you know, country folk, they don't care. But just think about how nasty and dirty and grimy and all the diseases and all the bacteria that are on the feet. That's disgusting. That's why when they ate, they would recline at the table, elbow down, feet facing away from the table because feet were gross. If you've ever eaten in a, in a country where this is still a common practice, particularly in Muslim countries, right? I lived with uh, Muslims when I was in college. It's still a practice. It was a foreshadowing of his work of redemption. He's saying, I'm going to wash your feet, but I'm going to wash you. I'm going to make you clean. My death on the cross, dying in your place for your sins, is going to take away the filth of your sinfulness. 
your rebellion against God is going to be washed away. You will be made clean. It's a foreshadowing of his death and his resurrection to come, right? Every sign in the book of John points us to that great reality. And then he turns around to the disciples and he says, as I've done to you, so you do among others. This is not just something that was reserved for Jesus. He says, this is the life of a disciple. I'm giving you an example that you should follow. This word example is the word pattern, a template. And not only is he giving us a pattern, he's giving us power. He's going to pour the Holy Spirit out in the book of Acts. You will receive power to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes. And you'll be my witnesses, he says, to the ends of the earth. This is redirection. Redirecting power and privilege. Pouring our lives out for the sake of others. This word redirection is not mine. I borrowed it from a man named John Dixon. He has a great book called Humilitas. And he talks about this as the essence of humility. He says, humility is the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. The humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in service of others. Humility is about redirecting, the redirecting of your powers, whether physical, intellectual, financial, or structural, for the sake of others. Now here's why I think redirection is so powerful in the moment in which we live. Redirection deconstructs both the frameworks of rights and responsibility. It deconstructs the framework of intersectionality. I mean, if you think about the cross, one pastor said this is the ultimate intersectionality. The Son of God become human being, blocked by the powers, spiritual, like political, religious, all of these powers conspiring together to try to hold down the Son of God, thinking that by killing Jesus and oppressing the Son of God, they were thwarting the plan of God. And what happens? When Jesus dies, he rises again, and he says, I can't be held down by earthly powers. There is no power that can ultimately press me down because I have the power of indestructible life in me. So it deconstructs intersectionality because it says the powers don't have the final word. You are not just a victim, that there is the possibility of transcending the powers. Colossians chapter 2, Jesus says this, or Paul writes this about Jesus. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, that word is powers, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. He came to strip the powers And it also deconstructs the responsibility framework because Jesus is saying it is impossible for any of us to earn this kind of favor, this kind of privilege. All of us must come to Jesus as failures, as losers. We cannot take personal responsibility for our own salvation. We must come as needy, as dependent, as children and receive the grace that comes to us And then Jesus creates a community of needy, dependent people whom he's purchased for himself. He places us in the church and he says, you are now all equal in Christ. You are now an alternative community of power seeking to redirect your power sacrificially for the good of one another. Each of you instilled with the dignity of the image of God, seeking to work out redemption together in the family of God called the church. That's powerful. That, I believe, has the power to move us forward as a community. So I want you to imagine what that could look like as we close. What would that look like for us to use and redirect the power that we've been given as image bearers of God? For those of us who are followers of Jesus, as those who have been graced and privileged with the resurrection power of Jesus, flowing through our veins, what would it look like for us to recapture a vision for that kind of use creatively of the power of God for the flourishing of others, for the flourishing of those in our missional community, for the flourishing of those in our neighborhoods, for the flourishing of those in our workplace, for our employees and our employers, for uh, those who are marginalized and those who have been pressed down in unfair ways.
for the poor, right? What would it look like for us to become that kind of community, fully conscious of the power we've been given and yet fully vulnerable, risking all of that in what Crouch calls a downward mobility that seeks to understand that the way down in the, in the kingdom of God is the way up, that weakness is the way to strength, that there's no crown without a cross. One of my favorite authors in speaking to this is a man named James Hunter. He has a great book that I've enjoyed um, since we planted this church, reading called To Change the World. And it's essentially, he's a sociologist and a professor, so it's kind of an academic look. It's a really thick book. I probably wouldn't recommend it to many of you, but, uh, but it's interesting. And he kind of looks at all the efforts to change the world, like historically. Christians are always talking about, let's change culture, okay? He's like, we do a terrible job of changing culture. And matter of fact, anytime we as Christians generally try to engage in power dynamics, we end up really just messing it up, right? So that's kind of like the thesis of the book. And then he kind of tries to paint a new picture of what he calls faithful presence in the world. But he, he talks about um, the most successful efforts to change the world in history don't come from merely uh, grassroots people uh, kind of, you know, aggregating themselves together to work for systemic change. He actually says it's a little bit more complex than that. Um, it's actually the coming together of the powerful and the powerless, to create new plausibility structures um, for the world. Listen to what he says. The impetus, energy, and direction for world-making and world-changing are greatest where various forms of cultural, social, and economic, and often political resources overlap. In short, when networks of elites in overlapping fields of culture and overlapping spheres of social life come together with their varied resources and act in common purpose— Cultures do change and change profoundly. Persistence over time is essential. Little of significance happens in three to five years. But when cultural and symbolic capital overlap with social capital and economic capital and in time political capital and these various resources are directed towards shared ends, the world indeed changes. I'm looking out at a very powerful, privileged group of people, including you. And and he says, like, this is true of the civil rights movement. This is true. He looks at Wilberforce and his work with the Clapham sect. He looks at this with Billy Graham's crusades, whatever you think of those. I mean, he looks at this across literature, art, and he says that every domain, there are the powerful partnering with the powerless, using and redirecting their power. And that's where you see true transformation. And so I ask, what could it look like for all of us as servant leaders to use and redirect the power that we've been given for the good of our neighbors? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. People are doing this in our church right now. It's awesome. And I want to see more of it. I want to see more of it happen. Like, just real quick, let's just do this before we close. If you're a mom or a grandma, would you just stand up real fast? Just go ahead, stand up real quick. Mom or grandma, stand up. Yep. Redirecting your power for the flourishing of children. Thank you for doing that. We have examples of women uh, sacrificing, giving up other opportunities, foregoing success to raise little tyrants and try to turn them into benevolent kings and queens. We have teachers. If you're a teacher, stand up. Or you work with Soma Kids, stand up. Let's just, yeah. We look at these teachers pouring out their lives for kids in our community, redirecting power and economic opportunity. I mean, you're not getting rich as a teacher, right? Like, they are the most probably underpaid profession and vocation in the world in America. Redirecting power for the education of minds and bodies and hearts and souls. Um, we have people in our church like Dave Neff, not in this service, who was in the marketing world and left to start uh, an organization called Edge Mentoring. This guy is one of the most connected people you'll ever meet in the city of Indianapolis. His phone has like 5,000 contacts. He could be leveraging that for great wealth and opportunity and privilege, and yet he's chosen the work of uh, this nonprofit, pouring himself into men and women, helping provide opportunities for them to gain access to capital through multi-generational relationships. 
I think of um, Adrian right here in our, in our uh, service, and she would hate me to do this, but like her relationship and her work with Boys and Girls uh, Club over the last several years and her relationship with this beautiful young woman named Pearl who's growing up to be an amazing young woman, and the time that Adrian spent redirecting the, I mean, Adrian, and she owns it, grew up in Carmel, right? Like, grew up in, in a very privileged part of our city, but, but didn't deny that, said, how can I use that and steward that for the good of this young lady who has all kinds of odds stacked against her? I think of Rebecca Whitson, who's in the healthcare field, so many of you in that field as well. Rebecca works for the health department. She's going around using her intellect and using her training, going door to door in communities, helping educate and helping redirect her power for the flourishing of those who wouldn't have otherwise access. I mean, we have so many examples of this. This is the vision of redirection. This is the power of redirection. And this is what Jesus came to initiate to secure, to bring about in his work of renewal. That's what we celebrate every week in communion. The body of Jesus broken for us, the power of God poured out for us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he, though he was rich, became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. This is the pattern of the kingdom of God. And this is the invitation for us as his children. Come and receive power that comes by being united to faith in Jesus, the resurrection power, the eternal life power of God himself held out to anyone, irrespective of race, class, gender, and all the other things that divide us. We receive that by faith, and then we move out into the world to share that with others. If you're a follower of Jesus, we'd invite you to take communion. We have stations in the front, stations in the back. Come take a piece of the bread, tear it off, and dip it into the cup. Return to your seat. If you're not a follower of Jesus, become a follower of Jesus. Submit yourself. Receive his love, his grace, his kindness, his mercy, his power in your life today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we'd invite you to stay in your seat as others come. The way we do that here at Soma, we have stations in the front, stations in the back. Come take a piece of the bread, tear it off, and dip it into the cup, and then return to your seat. I'm going to pray for us. Ask for God's help for us as a community that we might have a vision for leadership like this, and that we might seek to live into 